again, let's get into the scriptures. But let's pray first. Lord, as we look today at the incredible evidence that Paul lays out for this fact that Jesus is alive, I just pray that that would change the way we even come to the scripture today. Lord, that you would purge away from us all religion and just work stuff that we just are doing right now. And Lord, that you would just change our hearts today. Give us a passion and a fire to follow you. Just give us the faith that we need to follow hard after you and to believe the evidence that is set before us. Just move in our midst by the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, Lord, would you use all of these facts to set us ablaze to live for you, God. Uh, Give us the ability to concentrate and to retain this information, not only in our head, but in our heart, Lord. Just move us to just great and incredible deeds for our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in uh, Corinthian history, certain false teachers had crept into Corinth who denied the resurrection of the dead. This may have been converted Sadducees, who were a religious group of Jews who were sad, you see, right? You knew it was coming because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the angels. They didn't believe in heaven. So there was always this fight between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, these two religious Jewish leaders, uh, specifically over those issues. So it could have been some converted Sadducees who always had this this hidden agenda to dis dissuade people and discourage them from the resurrection having taken place or going to take place. Uh, Or it could have been certain Epicurean philosophers who we read about in Acts 17. They were from Athens and, uh, and of course, Corinth was a part of uh, the Grecian culture and area. And we read in Acts 17.32 that as Paul preached on Mars Hill to the Athenian philosophers that when they heard of the resurrection of the dead in his message, they mocked him, or in other words, sneered at him, while others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. You know, the idea of the resurrection of the body was something that was new. It's something that Christianity, that the message of the gospel has spearheaded. Anything else that you hear similar to that was actually robbed from Christianity, And so uh, these philosophers of Athens, the scriptures say that they just got together for no other purpose than to just hear some new thing. And they heard something new that day about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when they heard about that, they mocked, all right? They laughed Paul out of there. But other people said, ah, we'll hear you again on this. Charles Hodge says that there was never a historical event established on more sure evidence than that of the resurrection of Christ. This fact, therefore, was included in the preaching of all the apostles. Paul preached it there in Athens. And I remember when we went through the book of Acts some three, four years ago, uh, I encouraged everyone to mark with a pen every time the resurrection is mentioned or preached. And as you go through the book of Acts, uh, I put little R's all over my Bible, and it's just R, 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 R. The resurrection was paramount and foundational to the church and to the apostles' preaching because it was such great evidence, and it's the apex of the good news of the gospel. Let's look at our text today. We're going to go from 3 through 11, 
I don't believe in knocking on wood, but I hope we make it that far today. (laughs) We did in first service. But it says in verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Paul was passing on what he had received from the Lord and what he had received from eyewitnesses who had been with the Lord. This message of the gospel never originated with him as a man. What the gospel is, is it is a transmission of eyewitness accounts. He didn't make it up. He received it from the Lord. Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, made it up. Joseph Smith, dubbing dubbing himself a prophet, evidence is conclusive, he made it up. Charles Russell, one of the founders of the Jehovah's Witness faith, made it up. And there's much evidence to show that to be true. But the message that Paul the Apostle preached, many times he declares, I received that from the Lord, in 1 Corinthians 11, that which I also delivered to you. This came directly from the Lord himself to Paul. And in Galatians 1.11, he says, What I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. The events that Paul is going to lay out here in 1 Corinthians 15 are at the heart of the gospel. First of all, that Christ died for sins. His death was a real death. And it's important to note that he died. Why is that? To emphasize that the resurrection that took place was a real bona fide rising from the dead. And we'll have more on that idea as we get to Jesus' burial. But let's just move on as the text lays it out for us. That Jesus died. And why did Jesus die? For our, Someone's following along. That's Dan. All right, buddy. For our sins. All right? There was a purpose behind the death. And it was to atone for the sins of the world. That the blood of Jesus would bring about the remission of sin. And we see that Old Testament principle that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It was Jesus' death that atoned for our sin and brought forgiveness. And a word that we studied a couple weeks ago, Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. That means that Jesus' death was the gift that satisfied the wrath of God against sinners. Jesus appeased the wrath of God against us when he died for us. Paul lays out here the fact for our personal sinfulness. When he died, he died to heal my rebellious, sinful heart. His death was an atoning death to pay the penalty for sin. All throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus' blood was shed for the remission of sins That God set forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. He was delivered up for our offenses. I'm just quoting verses here. uh, That he might deliver us from this present evil age. In Ephesians chapter 1 it says we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter 3.18 says that he suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God And in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, Jesus is the one who loved us and washed us from our sins. In what cleansing agent? 
tides Clorox with bleach? No. With his own blood. Peter calls it precious blood. So when I realize that my short temper is sin, and my impure lustful thinking is sin, and my covetous materialistic heart is sin, that my unfaithfulness is sin, and my arrogance is sin, just to name a few sins, then I look upon the cross of Calvary from a different perspective. That it was God's mercy, and it was God's wrath, all shown at the same time. It's God's mercy and God's justice shown at the same time there at Mount Calvary. It was my sin that held Jesus there. We sing that song. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. In John chapter 1 verse 29, John the Baptist looks up and sees Jesus coming down to be baptized. And what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What that means is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament sacrifices. All of the bulls, all of the goats, all of the pigeons, all of those sacrifices pointed to one who would come one day who would be sinless and spotless. And he would come not by force, but by his willing heart, laying his life down for the people. The book of Revelation calls him the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. It was always the plan that Jesus would lay his life down. For the sins of the world. And we'll see that later on in our text today. A couple quick ABCs of man's sinfulness. Because of our sin, we are alienated. Alright? We are alienated from God. Because of our sin, we are in bondage. That's the B. We are in bondage to sin. And because of our sin, we are in conflict with others. And the reason we're in conflict with others is because we're in bondage to sinful desires, which is because we're in alienation from God. As Augustine said, Oh God, our hearts are restless and they remain restless unless they can find their rest in Thee. And it's through resting in Jesus that the ABCs of sin are turned upside down. No longer is there alienation from God, but there's reconciliation with God. No longer is there bondage to sin, but there's freedom from sin. And no longer is there conflict with one another, but God moves us to compassion and mercy towards one another. A chorus that I heard this week that just stuck to my heart said, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan and the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free and pardon there was multiplied to me. There the burdened soul finds liberty at Calvary. Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, we're going to see in the next verse that it was also that he was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. So more on that in a second at the end of verse 4. But we see not only did he die according to the scriptures, but in verse 4, he was buried. Okay? Now, the death of Jesus is important and the burial of Jesus is important because the burial shows that his death was a real death. His burial proves that he was dead And that he had not swooned as many of the skeptics of the empty tomb postulate. 
The swoon theory is one of their best to try to disprove the empty tomb. It's the idea that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but that he lost so much blood and he got weak that he passed out. They took him off, laid him in the tomb. The cool air and moist air from the tomb raised him back and, and, you know, woke him up. And he was able to break loose from all of the uh, swaddling or the grave clothes and the spices and everything and push the two and a half ton stone away and toss it off to a great distance and then kung fu chop all of the 15 Roman soldiers and then run off and find the rest of the disciples and get them to believe in him again. It's a real theory, all right? We're going to talk more about it uh, on Easter Sunday. It's quite similar to a week ago in the news when 78-year-old Mississippi man was pronounced death, dead on Wednesday, but was alive on Thursday in what officials are calling a miracle. But as the New York Times says, it's probably more likely a case of a pacemaker that stopped and restarted. Did you guys hear about this? The resurrection incident began on Wednesday night when Holmes County officials were called to the home of Walter Williams in Lexington, Mississippi, north of Jackson. Coroner Dexter Holmes told reporters that the pronoun- he pronounced Williams dead on Wednesday night and sent the body off to a mortuary in a body bag for the final trip home. The next morning, when workers at Porter and Sons Funeral Home were preparing to embalm Williams, they noticed something was going on inside the body bag. Williams had started to kick in the body bag he had been transported in. He was then rushed to a local hospital. All right. So what happened to Walter Williams is essentially what many critics think happened to Jesus uh, on the cross. He had simply swooned. But Joseph of Arimathea one who was awaiting for the kingdom of God, had actually asked for the body of Jesus. A test was done by the Roman soldiers to show if Jesus had indeed died. Does anybody remember what that was? A spear was thrust up through Jesus' side, and then what came out? Blood and water, which physicians will say is uh, an, an evidence of a collapsed heart cavity. All right, Jesus' heart had essentially kind of exploded and blood and water, fluid from the heart, had come out of his side. So there was no doubt that he was dead. Pontius Pilate affirmed that. The dead body was given to Joseph, who was then uh, embalmed Jesus with over 100 pounds of fragrant spices. And Mark's gospel speaks of these spices. Now, those of you that work out, you know, you start lifting your 25s, you know, or your 35s, you know, and you're like, oh yeah, 70, baby, woo! Imagine a hundred pounds of spices after you've just been crucified, all right, and swooning and kind of, not exactly sure what the embalming process was as far as like gutting him or whatever, but he was able to come and break loose out of all of those things. His death was a real death, and it was in fulfillment of the prophecies, like in Isaiah 53, 9 of the suffering servant, where it says that they made his, uh, excuse me, he, uh, where is it here? They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence. In Mark chapter 15, 43 through 46, give us the account of Joseph of Arimathea going and getting this dead body and embalming this dead body as he brought, Nicodemus actually was the one who brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds, and they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips with linen and with spices, as the custom of the Jews was to bury. So he was buried because he was dead. And, Paul says, he rose again the third day. 
This was not a general resurrection in the last day that everyone expected, but a specific set date that Jesus himself said he would rise. It was in fulfillment of the prophecy of Jonah. And Jesus said, you want a sign? Here's your sign. Kind of a prehistoric bilingual, you know. He says, you want a sign? Here's your sign, all right? As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days. But he will rise again. You know, Paul asks the question when he's preaching in Acts 26, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? If God created the heavens and the earth and he made you and the human eye and the intricacies of the heart and the lung and the cell, then why would it be hard to believe that he could raise the dead? And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, John says, I saw Jesus and I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. It's because of the resurrection that we as Christians from 2,000 years ago have been able to move forward. Without it, Jesus is just another rabbi. In fact, he's worse than they. C.S. Lewis says that Jesus is either a, a liar or a lunatic, or he's got to be Lord. And Henry Morris, PhD, says, man, he's got to be a charlatan or a madman if he didn't rise from the dead. In fact, he's worse than they because he claimed absolute deity and staked it all on the fact that he would rise from the dead. So either Jesus is alive or he's someone we should call crazy, a liar, Not a nice prophet, not similar to Gandhi. He's someone that we should disdain and we should go about our lives because tomorrow we die. We should go have a little bit of fun. All right? But if he did rise from the dead, then he is worthy of our absolute allegiance and worship and our very lives to tell the world. He rose again on the third day and here it said again that that was according to the scriptures. This was not a divine afterthought where God was like, yay, everyone's going to receive the Messiah. And they did it and they murdered him. And he's like, now what are we going to do? Oh gosh, uh, raise him from the dead. You know, this was the plan from before the foundations of the world. In Isaiah chapter 53, we read of this death of the Messiah, the suffering servant. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading this passage and and he says to Philip, who is this prophet speaking of, himself or someone else? And Philip says, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And that's when the Ethiopian eunuch said, what must I do to be saved? Jesus would speak about his time, my time, my hour. It's going to be fulfilled. It has been written in the whole of the Old Testament. Psalm 22 was written about a thousand years before crucifixion was even invented. It's called the Psalm of the Cross, where David prophesies of his great-great-great-great-grandson, Jesus, of his hands and his feet that would be pierced. There was no death in that form back then. That was something the Romans would invent years and years later, centuries later. He also prophesies that these dogs or these Gentiles would surround him and shoot the lip out at him, mocking him. He also prophesies that they would cast lots for his, uh, for his clothing. Something that was fulfilled by a bunch of people that disdain Jesus. And Jesus says, the hour has come to glorify the Son. There in his final prayer in John 17. 
It pleased the Lord to, pr- to bruise Jesus. It was something that was prophesied of of old. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, it says, After 62 weeks, uh, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. It was prophesied that the Messiah would die. And when you do the math from Daniel's prophecy and the rebuilding of the wall in Nehemiah's day, these 62 weeks or 62 sets of seven years, it comes down to the very day that Jesus rides in on the donkey into Jerusalem. In Galilee, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He was doing all these ministries, all these ministries, and then there came a time in Matthew chapter 20 that he said, I'm going up to Jerusalem to be killed. Mark's gospel says he set his face, and it meant with a purpose he was going up to die. And he spoke to all of his disciples many times and says, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem, is going to be betrayed, is going to be delivered up and killed, but I will rise again. I will rise again from the lips of Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus appears to the two on the road to Emmaus. And they were all sad that Jesus had died. And aren't you aware of the current events? Jesus died this week. We thought he was the Messiah. And Jesus showed himself to them and said, Man, i got to show you all that the Old Testament speaks of, that the Christ ought to suffer and die. But I'm alive again. Michael Green writes in his book, Man Alive! At least that's how I say the title of his book. Man alive. He says, Christianity does hold the resurrection to be among many tenets of belief. Without faith in the resurrection, there would be no Christianity at all. The Christian church would never have begun. The Jesus movement would have fizzled out like a wet firework at his execution. Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. Disprove it and you have disposed of Christianity. Christianity is an historic religion. It claims that God has taken the risk of involving himself in human history, and the facts are there to prove it. For you to examine with the utmost vigor, they will stand any amount of critical investigation. So as we're going to see today, the fact is Christ is risen. The New Testament declares it, and Christianity would not have lasted without it. One man dubbed the resurrection the crowning proof of Christianity. And Jesus called it just that, the sign. We need to know that without the fact, the doctrine of Christ's death and resurrection, we would have no foundation. Remove this foundation and the whole fabric fails. Our hopes for eternity sink at once. And so Paul goes on to give us a bit more evidence that Jesus is risen He says that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. We have just reality of evidence here. Key evidence of reliable eyewitnesses. Whenever there's the absence of eyewitnesses, the burden of proof is solely on the prosecutor. But we have the eyewitnesses. And the apostles would go go to great stakes to make sure we knew that. Even in the way that Luke's gospel's introduction states... It says, we have taken at hand to set in order a narrative of those things that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses, all right? I don't know about you guys, but I grew up in Klamath Falls. No, that's not what I meant. I don't know about you, but the news team in Klamath Falls, K-O-T-I-T-V, I think is what it was called, had eyewitness news, you know, every night at five. And for some reason, I was like, ooh, eyewitness news, you know, eyewitness news. I saw it. I was there. 
Eyewitnesses are great to hear from concerning the evidence. Luke knew it, so he uses that word autopsies. Autopsies, which is a very technical word meaning one who saw an occurrence and gives the report on what he or she has seen. And when we handle the text, we realize these were real physical appearances, not just spiritual appearances and not uh, hallucinations. John writes the epistle first, John, go figure. And the way he starts it out is awesome, but I read it for the first time in the Phillips paraphrase this week, and I want to share it with you. It's pretty cool. Did you know the Phillips paraphrase was written during World War II in England for teenagers so that they could understand the word? So I hope you guys like this, all you teens out there. Tweens, too. says this. We are writing to you about something which has always existed, yet which we ourselves actually saw and heard. Something which we had an opportunity to observe closely and even to hold in our hands. And yet, as we know now, was something of the very word of life himself. For it was life which appeared before us. We saw it, and we are eyewitnesses of it, and are now writing to you about it. It was the very life of all ages, the life that has always existed with the Father, which actually became visible in person to us mortal men. We repeat, we really saw and heard what we are now writing to you about. I love that. I repeat, I really saw what I'm writing to you about. Not only me, but other people. Tom Arnold, who's not married to Roseanne, different one. Thomas Arnold was a former professor of history at rugby and Oxford. He's been known as one of the world's greatest historians. He writes this, The evidence for our Lord's life and death and the resurrection may be and often has been shown to be satisfactory. It is good according to the common rules for distinguishing good evidence from bad. Thousands and tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece, as carefully as every judge summing up an important case. I myself have done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. Uh, it's been used, for, or excuse me, I've been used for many years to study the history of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who've written about them. And I know of, and listen to this, and I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is better proved by fuller evidence than the great sign that God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. This is a wonderful testimony from someone who has spent all of his life dealing with the issues of evidence and history. And I pray today, if you're here and you're hearing this for the first time, that you would just be reasonable. That you would just be logical. That you would just say, man, the evidence is showing me today that Jesus isn't just some nice guy that lived thousands of years ago and died in a desert somewhere, but he rose from the dead, proving that he's the Lord God of the universe and that he loved me and that he's paid for my sins by laying his life down for me. And that fact demands a response on my part. Would you please be reasonable today? Examine the facts. John Stott died about two years ago, a great Scottish preacher, said, while many people have a surface interest in Christianity, 
Sadly, so few have ever considered the facts. Ignorance is probably the greatest enemy of the Christian faith today, and muddle-headedness is one of the sins of the age. Are you muddle-headed in your understanding of Christianity? Do you have any ability to give a defense of the things that we've been taught from the scriptures? Paul gives it to us here, and so learn to use 1 Corinthians 15, that he was seen by Cephas. That is Peter. Remember, Peter used to be called Simon, which meant pebble, and then the Lord renamed him to Cephas, or it's also translated Peter, which means rock. And Peter was one that saw the evidence. In Luke chapter 24, verse 34, the saying started, The Lord is risen indeed. In fact, many of the uh, more traditional churches will begin certain Sundays by saying, The Lord is risen. And then everybody will repeat, He is risen indeed. Shall we try that? The Lord is risen. Boom, you guys got it. We can just end there. But that verse goes on to say, and he has appeared to Simon, exclamation point. The Lord has risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. Peter saw him in perhaps a private meeting with the risen Jesus. Could you imagine? This happened sometime between Mary seeing Jesus and Jesus appearing to the two on the road to Emmaus because when the two went back and said they saw Jesus, they said the Lord is risen indeed and he's appeared to Simon. Simon was an eyewitness. Now why did Peter get some special appearance? I mean, that's not fair. You remember that Peter, he was in the inner circle of the disciples, right? Peter, James, and John. And Peter, he did pretty good in school. He was the kid that sat in the front row, right? You know? He was the one that when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're Jeremiah and some say, you know, you're John the Baptist risen from the dead. And some say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And guys, that's the most important question of all of eternity. Who do you say Jesus is? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And Peter's like, yeah. You know, and two seconds later, Jesus gives this prophecy and says, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be killed, but I will rise again. And what did Peter say? Not so, Lord. There's got to be another way. You're not doing that. We're not going to Jerusalem. You're not dying. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And so Peter, you know, old foot in the mouth Peter, you know, he had another instance later on in Jesus' time here on earth. And you remember it. The last night, Jesus says, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. You guys are going to betray me. You're going to leave me. And Peter says, no, Lord, never. I will never. Everyone else might. Not me. I'm there, man. Even if I have to die. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, man, don't argue with the God man. You're going to deny me. Before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. And so as Jesus is delivered over into the hands of the Jews, and he's uh, the house of uh, so-and-so has a bonfire going on in the middle of it, the high priest there, there's a bonfire, and Peter goes over to the bonfire area to warm himself, and people start recognizing him. Hey, you're that Galilean. Your speech betrays you. No, I'm not. You know Jesus. I've never heard of him. I've never seen him. And then a little girl like, yeah, you are, you know Jesus. And he curses. 
He denies ever, you know, and the roosters are crowing. And he remembers. Could you imagine if Jesus died and that was it? And Peter had that going on. Could you live with that for the rest of your life? But Jesus rose from the dead. And in his grace and his mercy, he went to someone just like me. In fact, I'm worse. I start out my week like, I'm going to fast three days this week. I'm going to read the whole Bible. And I'm going to witness to everyone I see, you know. I swear. And then, like, the week goes by. I haven't read my Bible, you know. Got in a fight with my wife. All this stuff, you know. And I just come on a Sunday morning, like, dirty feet and just like. And God's there resurrected saying, hey, I'm appearing to you today. Get up. Stand up. Stand in my perfection. Stand in what I've done. And he shows up in mercy and grace to Simon Peter. And he encourages him. And he appoints him to ministry later on at the Sea of Galilee. Peter didn't deserve a resurrection appearance, but he needed a resurrection appearance. Then Jesus was seen alive by the twelve. This is clearly a generic term as in referring to a club. They were known as the twelve. Judas wasn't there. He'd hung himself. Thomas wasn't there at this point. But it was the same way of saying the elders were there making no apologies for absence or saying, hey, the team was there, even though maybe the whole team wasn't there yet or someone was late or someone was absent that day. It's a round number for the 11 was the 12. These were the apostles by which our faith is built on. Ephesians says our faith is built on the foundation of the apostles who had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Matthew 28, 16 the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Verse 6 tells us, after he was seen by the twelve, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Did you guys know that? Some of you probably knew that. Old news, Rory, don't really care. Some of you today, dude, 500 people at one time saw Jesus alive. All right? Those are good eyewitnesses, all right? That's good testimony. There's quantity to the eyewitness accounts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, just before Jesus ascends, it says, He also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus used that time... To show that he was alive. 40 days in front of a bunch of different people doing a bunch of infallible proofs. Paul says that many of these, the greater part, remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Paul's insistence that most of them were still alive shows the confidence with which you could use this evidence and this testimony. These people could be gotten and interrogated and the facts could be elicited. These people could be sifted thoroughly to ascertain the truthfulness of their testimony. There are many people still alive. That's kind of cool to read this and to be like, at the time this was written, there were still people cruising the earth that like hung out with the risen Jesus, right? And it says that some of them have fallen asleep. Isn't that a beautiful way that Paul refers to those who've died? Death has become for the Christian nothing more than sleep. 
And for someone who is born again, you need fear death just as much as you fear putting your head down on your pillow at night, closing your eyes, and waking up in paradise. Isn't that incredible? Some of you are terrified to go to sleep, so that's a whole other issue. (laughs) My son, who has night terrors, we're afraid for him to go to sleep. Anyways, the Christian need fear death as much as they fear laying their head on the pillow at night. On 13 separate occasions, these disciples had seen Jesus after he'd risen from the dead. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, to the other women, to Peter, to the two on the road to Emmaus, to 10 of the disciples, to all 11 of the disciples eight days later, to seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee, to 500 followers at one time, to James, we'll see in a second, the brother of Jesus, to 11 at the Ascension. He was seen by Stephen, by Paul, and by John post-ascension. Now, some of these accounts of visions of Jesus and seeing Jesus have been mocked at by, uh, by skeptics and declared merely hallucinations or visions induced by drugs or hypnosis or some form of hysteria. Henry Morris, Ph.D., writes, such hallucinations, if this is what they were, are quite unique in human history and warrant the most careful psychological scrutiny. They were experienced by a large number of different individuals, all seeing the same vision, but in different groups at different times, both indoors, outdoors, on a hilltop, along a roadway, by a lakeshore, and other places. Furthermore, they weren't looking for Jesus at all. Several times they didn't recognize him at first, at least once they actually believed it was a ghost until he convinced them otherwise. He invited them to touch him, and they recognized the wounds in his hands. They watched him eat with them. On one occasion, over 500 different people saw him at one time, most of whom were still living at the time the evidence was being used. Morris goes on to say, The vision theory is thus quite impossible, and therefore the numerous appearances of Christ must be regarded as absolutely historical and genuine. This fact, combined with the evidence of the empty tomb, renders the resurrection as certain as any fact of history possibly could be. This uncontrollable evidence, one man put it, uncontrollable evidence of Christ's resurrection from the dead. When so many people saw him at so many different places alive, handling him, it says, this man says, put his resurrection out of doubt. I like that. Uncontrollable evidence. Out of doubt. And then these men went on to propagate it. At tremendous cost to themselves. The death of their families, the death of their friends, the death of each other, the loss of their own life, the loss of all of their possessions. Pascal was a great mathematician and logician, not magician, logician. He was a logical man, he was a scientist and inventor. Says concerning the idea that the disciples stole the body. And that's to explain the resurrection. He says this. It's quite absurd, Pascal says. Follow it out to the end and imagine these 12 men meeting after Jesus' death and conspiring to say that he'd risen from the dead. 
This means attacking all the powers that be. The human heart is singularly susceptible to fickleness, to change, to promises, to bribery. One of them had only to deny the story under these inducements, or still more because of possible imprisonment, torture, and death, and they would all have been lost. Only one of them had to go back on his promise to tell a lie, and their case would be blown. But not one man recounted seeing Jesus alive. Sosthenes was a Roman historian. You've heard his name before. He said that punishment and persecution was afflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous miracle. That darn resurrection is a mischievous miracle. Can't shake it. Jesus is alive. You might say, well, he just, his disciples just kept the lie going. Or they just shared the truth. Leon Morris wrote, The apostles were not poised on the brink of belief and needing only the shadow of an excuse before launching forth into a proclamation of the resurrection. They were utterly skeptical. That's humorous to me a little bit. You know, that the disciples had been told and told by Jesus and the Old Testament pointed towards the resurrection. Yet when Jesus died, they'd like run away. They weren't expecting it. And when Jesus actually did show up, first of all, Mary's, you know, the Mary's said, he's alive. And they're like, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. What are you talking about? You know? And then when he does show up, they think they see a ghost. These were not guys that were expecting it, getting ready to like go tell this story. It was elite. It was the last thing that they expected. Verse seven says he was seen by James. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And what's incredible about this evidence is that James was a skeptic of his own brother, Jesus. John chapter 2, I believe, says that his family didn't believe. But something happened to lead him to believe and to be born again and to be one of the key leaders in the church of Jerusalem. Galatians calls James a pillar of the church. What could that event have been that caused Brother James, who was like, my stinking brother thinks he's the Messiah. Don't they all, right? <laughs> what could lead him to believe in his brother? Seeing him risen from the dead. And in Acts chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we read of the disciples all in the upper room. And it says, Mary and Jesus' brothers were there. Now, if you were going to invent a false religion, one of the incredible things about the Bible is that it records with honesty the great men's mistakes. You got Abraham going into Hagar and creating an Ishmael, you know, you've got all kinds of stuff happening. You got Moses like betraying his wife to the different kings, you know, you got all David, you know, like King David, you know, had an affair and then murdered the husband and tried to hide it and all this stuff. And you've got the Messiah himself whose own family doesn't believe him until he rose from the dead. And proof, the proof was there. It says that he was seen by all of the apostles. In verse 8, last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So the last witness brought to the witness stand to testify is Paul the apostle. It's great to hear the testimonies of how someone comes to Christ. And Paul has an incredible conversion experience. So reliable is the evidence. It must be accepted. But Paul can go on by putting his own personal experience on the trial, on the line. There's an, uh, Paul here, he says that he is one born out of due time. The word there speaks of abortion. 
speaks of miscarriage. It kind of speaks of preemie. But it's a very grotesque word that Paul uses to describe himself. Because you see, he wasn't with all the other apostles hanging out with Jesus in Galilee and in Jerusalem and at the Last Supper and the foot washings and all that stuff. No, at that time, he was not liking Jesus. In fact, he's going to go on in a second here to persecute the church. So when he finally comes in having an appearance of Jesus that was unlike any of the others, the Corinthians actually kind of mocked him for it. They didn't really like Paul. They didn't really like the way that he was converted. And so Paul says, I've got this conversion, I've got this apostleship that's kind of like a baby that was born, you know, not really ready, you know, (laughs) put it back in, you know. It's interesting, real quick, that Paul says that he was one born out of due time. His conversion was later than all the other apostles. See, it's hot in here, Will. Crank the AC up! Okay, my wife's not here today, so I can say that. There's another man who possibly is one born out of due time as well. His name is Josephus Flavius, okay? He was a a Jew who fought against the Romans when the Romans were coming to destroy Jerusalem back at 70 AD time period. But he was captured in the Battle of Jatapata, and he was put into the Roman ranks as a historian. So he was kind of a slave, had to record all that was happening. Incredible book, The War of the Jews by Josephus. It'll make you quake as you read it. But Josephus, some believe he's not a believer, and, uh, but I think this account is interesting because he writes, he was born just a few years after Jesus rose from the dead while some of these eyewitnesses were still alive. And he writes this in his book, The Antiquities. This is called Testimonium Flavium. And listen to this. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. Now, listen to this. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the the divine prophets had foretold, these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day." I got news, Josephus. The tribe of Christians is still not extinct. Here we are. What else can explain? If Jesus was dead in some Palestinian desert grave over there, that over here 2,000 years, we would meet not only every week, but every day to declare the resurrected Christ. Josephus, perhaps another one like Paul, born out of due time. But Paul says that, in humility. In verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Do you sense the humility that he writes here? Just, I, I persecuted the church of God. I'm the least of the apostles. Later on in this, in this very chapter, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. In Ephesians, he says, like, Even though I'm equal to the apostles, I'm the least of the apostles. He walks in such humility. Why? At the end of the verse, because I persecuted the church of God. Anyone here is a born-again Christian today and you used to beat up the Christians in high school? I mean, that would be a little bit of a taste of uh, what Paul went through. Yeah, I used to lock him in his locker. 
kind of sorry about that, you know. <laughs> or I used to spit on those Christians. Ooh. Here's what Paul used to do, okay? I want to give you a little bit of history. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen the deacon is the first martyr. And when he preached the gospel, chapter 7 verse 54 says that when they heard him preach, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Have you ever been that mad? My kids have been. I think I popped a blood vessel right there. That was a little dramatic. Okay. So that's how mad they were at this gospel, preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, right? In Acts 7.58, just four verses later, they take Stephen, they cast him out of the city, they stone him, and the witnesses laid their clothes down at the feet of a young man named Saul. What that meant in that culture is that whoever was given the decree to kill somebody, the people who were doing the killing came so that they could get good throws in and not be hampered by their outer garments. They would set them at the feet of the one giving the green light. And who was the one giving the green light for the first martyr of the church, the deacon Stephen? Saul of Tarsus. One chapter later, Acts 8 verse 1 says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. That's Stephen's death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Can you picture that? That happens in the world today. Right now, over in some foreign land, churches are being invaded People are being beat up, drug out. Churches are being demolished. People are being thrown in prison. And Paul was part of that. In fact, he was one of the first ones to do it. Re- uh, what was the word? Reeking havoc? Is that even a phrase? He made... Oh, it reeks of havoc in here. He made havoc of the church. It says he entered every house and dragging off men and women committed them to prison. That's pretty bad, men and women. And I think over the years, I kind of have forgotten how bad of an hombre Saul was. I mean, I always think, yeah, I put him in prison. Mm, That is not good. But the very next passage of Acts chapter 9 says that Saul was breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked letters from the high priest to go to the synagogues of Damascus So that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he was breathing threats, breathing murders. He was a man who was obsessed with the total destruction of Christians. He's one of those guys, you invite him over to the barbecue and he won't quit talking about something. And his was like the stupid Christians, let's just kill them all. And you're like, um, cheese on your burger or what, you know? And Paul's very honest in his testimony. In Acts chapter 22, when he, teach, when he tells his testimony, he says in verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women. Later on, he says, uh, I went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there in Jerusalem to be punished. And then in Acts 26, this is the last one here, he says... Uh, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, 
having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, there's that gnashing of the teeth, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. The language says that Paul would look Christians in the eye and say, let them die. And then Paul's walking on the road to Damascus. And a big bright light shines down upon him. And everyone who's with him going to arrest Christians, they all saw the light. But only Paul heard the voice. And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Saul says, what do you want me to do, Lord? And it was from that point on that his life was given over to absolute service of Christ. Service of Christians. But it seems like he never really forgave himself of what he did. He always had that heart. I'm the least. I persecuted the church. God's been so gracious to me. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle or to be one who saw the resurrected Jesus. I'm an, I'm an abortion. I'm a miscarriage. I'm not one of the like fully developed apostles, you know. This is me. But that humility was useful. As he says, I'm undeserving. I'm the least. In nothing, I was behind the most eminent of the apostles, though I'm nothing. Paul would say of himself, I am the least among all the saints, and I'm the chief of sinners. He walked in humility. He didn't work his life out in guilt, but he worked it out in gratitude for the grace that was given to him. In closing, Tim Keller is a Presbyterian preacher today, just amazingly gospel-centered and just a great mind. He writes this, and it made me think of Saul when I read it. The gospel of justifying faith means that while Christians are in themselves still sinful and sinning, yet in Christ, in God's sight, they are accepted and righteous. So we can say that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. At the very same time, this creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. It means that the more you see your own flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. But on the other hand, the more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more able you are to drop your denials and self-defenses and admit the true dimensions of character in your sin. See, Paul was very aware of his past. That's why he called himself the chief of sinners. But he realized that God loved him. In Christ Jesus, he redeemed him from that sin. That Grace became precious and electrifying and amazing as he was aware of his faults and flaws and even the persecution of the church. He was able to be real, real about his sin. It's here that Paul talks of the grace of God. Look at verse 10. We'll have the worship team come on up just to encourage you guys that this does have an end at some point today. Verse 10 says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which is in me. Did you catch all the graces in there? Grace, 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 grace. 
By the grace of God, I am what I am, and I'm, a, I'm an apostle who used to slaughter Christians. It's by God's grace that I'm born again, and I'm still useful for his kingdom. It says, it's by grace that I labored more abundantly than, than them all. That means laboring to the point of weariness. And he says it, that more than all of the other apostles put together, I am laboring. It wasn't the man Paul that was laboring, but it was the grace of God that was effective as he speaks of this grace. In school of ministry this last week, we were trying to work out the tension between God sovereignly working through us now that we're Christians, but also man's working and man's responsibility. And, you know, there's this paradox, there's this mystery, and, uh, and you know, we were just trying to work through it. But we see that here, this incredible passage, and I didn't even know we'd be at this this week, but it says, I labored more abundantly. So we have Paul's work, right? I labored. But then what does he go on to say? Yet not I. It's not Paul in and of his own strength, and I'm just doing it, and I've got this big law placed upon me to do it, and I have to do it to appease God. No, he says, it's the grace of God working through me. And we see this in a few different places in Scripture. Jesus says when we go to preach the gospel and we're standing before kings and authorities, he says, it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Well, I'm, I'm speaking. Yeah, but it's the spirit of God working through you. Or in Romans 15, 18, where Paul says, I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and in deed. All this labor that's happening among the Christians, who gets the credit? It's Christ doing it in us. I remember saying this, this same verse at one point. Well, doesn't the Bible say to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Yeah, better start working. What's the very next verse say without a period in between it? For it is God who works in you both to will and do for his good pleasure. If I may close with uh, the three commentators, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, as they wrote... This not I, but grace working in me implies that though the human will concurred with God when brought by his spirit into conformity with his will, yet grace so prepondered in the work that his own cooperation is regarded as nothing and grace as virtually the sole agent. And I pray today that you would see the grace of God. What is grace? It is an undeserved gift that God gives to you today in Christ Jesus. Freedom from sin, forgiveness of sin. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be washed as white as snow. You don't deserve that. Neither do I. But in Christ Jesus, that type of purity is available for you today. Salvation from the wrath of God is a gift of God. Salvation from the power of sin is a gift of God. Salvation from the presence of sin in the future is a gift of God. The Spirit dwelling in us and giving us power to obey and to speak and to evangelize and to further the kingdom. It's the grace of God. The grace of God.
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.